0: the 48th edition of Living a Whole Christian Life. This is Dr. Jim Schrader, and it's great to be with you as we wrap up our focus on the psychological dimension. So we've talked a lot about emotions, we talked a lot about just our cognitions in general, and today we're going to continue the series on our understanding our feelings and emotions much better as it pertains to God's design. So the first thing we need to do in order to kind of address this is we've talked in the past about cognitive distortions, and they are those kind of irrational patterns of thinking that all of us at one time fall prey to. As we said, the more we fall prey to them, the worse our psychological and our physical and our social and even spiritual outcomes get. But today I want to come back to one that I think is really critical as we wrap up the psychological dimension and also continue our series on understanding the emotional makeup of who we are. And that is what we call emotional reasoning. So the easiest way to think about emotional reasoning is the statement that if I feel it, therefore it must be. If I feel like an idiot, well, then I must be an idiot. If I feel like nobody likes me, then, well, nobody must like me, right? And again, as we've said with the emotions from the beginning, they are part and parcel of who we are and very much the fabric of our existence. But the challenging thing with emotional reasoning is that we allow the emotional state that we have to define the reality completely. And that's what happens here. And an interesting thing is that it doesn't just apply to negative emotions when we're talking about emotional reasoning. For example, if I feel really smart in a situation, it doesn't necessarily mean I am really smart, right? I think that many of us may have seen the recent Holiday Inn commercial series that basically makes you feel like, well, I've got the answers even though I may not have the answers. Or if I feel like I'm in love, it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm truly in love. Maybe it's a state of infatuation or or something else there. And so the key here is that while we need to be aware and while we recognize we are emotional beings, whether it's something really positive or something really negative, we have to be very careful about this, this distortion, this idea of emotional reasoning. And so how do we do that? How do, how do we not get trapped into believing automatically that the way we feel isn't necessarily the way it just is? Well, the first thing we have to really do is we have to consider the context by which we experience these emotions. We have to consider also the evidence for or against these emotions. But let's talk about the context first. I, I always think about the funny thing, you know, back when American Idol and all of those singing shows really came into fruition. I'm sure there were a lot of people who were singing in the shower who were convinced that they were the next American Idol, or at least they were going to make it to the show, right? Because, you know, by yourself in a comfortable place, it's easy to kind of feel like you may have the, the voice, right? The actual voice that everyone's going to be swept away with. But the reality is that once you step outside that context, many of us, myself included, actually know I have no voice at all. It's pretty horrible. So um, fortunately, I I was aware of that. But many times people might have thought they had a great voice and then they began to recognize if they sang in other places, it didn't sound quite as good and people didn't receive it quite as well, right? It may be the same thing of thinking about like a golfer on his or her home course, who really seems to like be able to shoot, you know, shoot well, maybe even under par at times, feels really, really comfortable and thinks, well, you know, maybe I'm not too far away from being at a professional status. But then take the same golfer off his or her own course and they start to not seem quite as professional. In fact, they may struggle quite a bit. So, one of the first things we have to do is always consider the context by which we experience the emotions. If you've had really difficult days or difficult weeks or whatever else like that, or there's been a situation recently that really has bothered you a lot, we would expect that our emotional state might kind of follow that, that trend, right? And so we have to be really careful about relying on what our emotions are telling us if, let's say, circumstances have made things really difficult. Or again, on the flip side, if they made things really good, you might be careful about trusting how good you think you are, how good you feel you are. But beyond context, we also have to, again, assess the reality of situation, right? And I think it's really important. We've been talking about this all throughout, a sense of really understanding, am I taking more of an objective look at things? I'm not saying to detach yourself from your own emotions, but you do have to step back and ask yourself, is there a lot of evidence to support what I'm feeling? And many times you'll find, you know, let's go back to the idea of everybody hates me many times in session with people, I've talked about this idea and they recognize, well, no, actually objectively, I know that a lot of people don't hate me. In fact, I have a a number of friends and family that really care for me deeply. So when I step back, evidence doesn't seem to support this emotional reality that I've put forth, right? And so there's lots of different ways on assessing, you know, might be getting feedback from someone else that you trust. Might be looking at the history of situations that you've been in, right? And you might feel a lot of fear about something happening, but then you may have realized that over decades it's never happened. But it's really, really important to assess that reality in addition to the context to understand how much we should rely on how we feel. But there's actually one more thing to think about here that's even more important than context and reality. And that is. How does our feeling, how does our emotion measure up against a particular virtue or virtues? This really is the ultimate way that we assess how our emotions really serve us in our lives. So I'm going to take anger, for example. Anger is obviously one of the four common emotions that we all feel. Kids feel it almost from the beginning of life. We feel it all the way to the end of life. We experience it in lots of ways. In and of itself, it's not a bad thing at all. And we certainly have come to know it throughout the course of many different situations. But the question we have to ask ourselves is when we feel anger or frustration or or even bothered, whatever kind of different derivation we would have of this emotion, my question would be, is this just or is my anger prudent, right? Prior, we talked again about prudence as the idea of, you know, is there's the intersection of goodness and reality. Um, But let's just take the two virtues of justice and prudence when we evaluate anger. And there's actually other ways to evaluate it too. So I want to use the first example where feeling angry and reacting onto it is not necessarily going to coincide or actually not going to coincide at all with the sense of justice or prudence. And that would be for all of us who have had a long day at work and you come home and it's just been, been kind of brutal and you feel the decisions you've made have been criticized and things haven't gone according to plan. And you just kind of are ready to leave, right? We've all been there. And you walk in the door, and even though you probably know you shouldn't, you right away find yourself displacing your anger. So maybe, you know, you yell at your kids uh, for something really small, or you just kind of like, you know, your wife tries to approach you in a nice way, and you don't really respond to it. Or the dog walks in front of you, and you just get so annoyed, you almost kick the family dog, you know, across the floor. And in that moment, in that sense of almost displacement of your anger, if we ask the question, are we acting justly or are we acting prudently in the way that we express our emotion, I think the easy answer, of course, is no, right? Now, again, is there anything wrong with the feeling? No, that's part of the human experience. How we allow the feeling to take course and the thoughts that come through it and then our actions that follow Really, that's our domain. That's maybe our sense of great free will. And in this particular example, it's clear that these are not just or prudent actions. But to take the second example straight from the New Testament, and that is the anger or righteous anger of Jesus when he walks in the temple and he realizes that his father's house has been turned into a place of commerce. And he walks over and through an exchange, he eventually turns over the tables. And one of the most striking, I think, moments of the Gospels turns over the money changers' tables and clearly lets them know that what they are doing is not appropriate to the worship of our Creator and His Father. In that moment, He's using His anger in a just and prudent way. And it may come even somewhat shockingly when you first read that, but the reality is that when you look at it in comparison to a virtue, you find that there it is, right? That anger in and of itself was used righteously and justly and prudently. So here's the key understanding that emotions without the backdrop of virtue are really kind of as useless and uninformed as a cat going in search of its tail. I know that may sound kind of funny, but think about this. If we're just constantly circling and you're the cat looking for the tail and you have not informed the way that you act from these emotions and thought about it and discerned it based on the virtuous understanding that we have, then it's not only going to be useless, but it's also really uninformed. And ultimately, it's going to be a futile search, right? And that's not where we want to be. And that's certainly not where God's design places us. So we have to really constantly be engaged in this process as it pertains to our feelings, right? Because if we don't, here's the thing that happens. And again, science really vindicates this idea from a theological standpoint is that if not, those lower order emotions start to really rule our lives. Remember what I talked about before, the lower order emotions of like anger and fear and just immediate gratification, all these things um, start to really rule our lives. And we will struggle to sustain the higher order states of being of love and trust and joy and peace. I mean, this is exactly what St. John meant when he says that fear prevents love. And that's that's a, that's a huge key because we often desire that love, right? We desire it so much. But the reality is that that if we do not address those lower order issues in the first place, we're not going to get to where we want with those higher order, those divine states. And the thought is here that effort through God's grace really is the mechanism of elevation. But love, like happiness, often is difficult to pursue if we are simply pursuing its pleasure while avoiding its pain. What I mean by that is the sense that we can't avoid the pain because the pain itself is the resistance that we need to work through. And if we avoid that, we'll never work through the resistance in order to attain the love that St. John speaks about. So this is where we have to become vulnerable and humble and constantly seeking to grow in order to really attain the life that we desire there. So I want you to imagine for a second, I want you to suspend a reality for a few moments and think about something here that would be, I think, quite remarkable. Imagine, at least briefly, we really did regard emotions of all kinds as an entry point to a more authentic reality where how we felt informed us, not really just to spirit us, right, or bothered us. Like, what if a funeral, a particular day attended by many loved ones evoked not only genuine mourning, but also varied feelings of contemplation, anxiety, and fervor that led each attendee to truly make real, sustained changes in their lives. Like, what if I walked into a store today and felt panicked for the hundredth time, but this time I thought to myself, what could I really do to reduce my fears, not just for me, but so my kids could grow up in a better way? And then I What if I sought out further support and acted on these initial inclinations instead of trying to avoid things repeatedly that contributed to those panic symptoms? Like what about in my sorrow about hearing a local child in need, I stopped finding reasons I could not help, but instead took a few steps to make this possible. Obviously, I mean, I'm recognizing that complications would ensue if we took every emotion seriously, as sometimes feelings are just best observed, not acted upon. But still, the simple point is that what if we took seriously the inherent messages of our feelings, just as we did the requirements of our work, or not only the requirements of our work, but the maintenance of our leisure? I mean, many might be quick to invest thousands of dollars and significant time in getting, whether it's a boat or, or something else, in hopes that it provides much enjoyment or relaxation. And that may happen. But what would it be if we just were as quick to invest the time and money required to improve our emotional state just as we do for so many other areas of our life? I think this is the question here, right? This is really the question that's being posed, I think, here to us so often is we invest so much in other things and so many ways to try to make ourselves happier. And I'm not suggesting that we all go out and see a therapist right now although at times that may be helpful, but I am suggesting that we continually utilize all the many means that we've discussed in this podcast and even beyond to improve our emotional experience. I'm suggesting that we prioritize this just as much as we prioritize areas that are way less even important in our lives. I think it's due time that we consider our emotional pursuits as a religious endeavor and not to mention also a physical reality and a social agent. Seeing our emotional pursuits simply as the emotions as they are, and just kind of a state of being, but not something that's more deeply spiritual, is ignoring the whole idea of the sense of the image and likeness of God upon our entire selves. So I think this is the thing that happens, is that many times when you come to God and you're seeking out a miracle for something That God kind of puts it back into our corner. I really do feel this way. And he says, look, there are times when my grace I give to you completely without you doing anything in return. But many times I still need that co-partnership. And that part of the miracle is you using the mechanisms that are within you and around you so that you can help also be part of this solution, this miracle to reduce the anxiety are the negative emotions that you feel. So I want to consider something finally as we end today. On the night in which Jesus prayed in the garden, he faced a final temptation. As he was getting ready to die and he knew that it was coming to him, it was the temptation of allowing his fear to prevent the ultimate love. When he spoke to his almighty father, he pleaded with them, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. And in what many consider maybe as his most human moment, he acknowledged what he was feeling. He didn't deny that he was scared. But then, in recognizing the horrors that lie ahead, he also asked for help of the most ultimate kind. And at this moment, as an emotional, feeling human being, something remarkable happened. His lower order emotion subsumed itself into a higher order will, actually two wills, his will and his will. For when he uttered the statement, quote, yet not as I will, but as you will, he in essence stated that his love for God, his father, would overrule the emotions he felt so that ultimately his father's will would prevail. He sensed that the final spiritual conquest was the confrontation and elimination of his own fear so that the perfection of love could be realized. Before God's love could be complete, it seemed that his fear must pass away to the ages. As he told his disciples, Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is is weak. He knew what his emotions were telling him, and he knew where it must lead, and he knew in the end he must let it go to something much greater. Isn't that what God is telling us each day? This is Jim Schrader. Be holy. Be whole.